So when we were meeting with JB and with Rachel, we were dividing up who was going to cover what topics. And when we were having the discussion, I said, this is the one topic that I do not want to do, and this is the one that I get to do. <laughs> Uh, you will need to bear with me today because I talked about that what we're doing in this class is talking about forgiveness and it is a journey and this particular topic is a journey that I am still in. But that's where we are. But before we get into that, just kind of wanted to flip back to last week. And last week uh, we looked at John chapter 11 where Jesus is going to the raising of Lazarus. And in verse 39, he gets to it and he says, as you can see with a tomb that would be similar to probably what Lazarus was buried in, and he said, take away the stone. He asked them to take away the stone, and Martha goes, no, he's been in the grave for four days. He's going to be decaying. He's going to smell. And he said, did I not tell you that if you only believed, you would see the glory of God? And so we talked about and we gave you a stone last week to carry with you and to think about and ponder. And we also went over these four different things to do about forgiveness. And that first one was is that when you go to somebody to ask for forgiveness, that you name it in the terms that they would say it. Not in your terms, in their terms. And then you ask them, what did my actions, what did I do how did that affect you? And you listen deeply. You do not interrupt, you just listen. And then that next step is, is you go back and again, name what you have done in their terms and repeat what they said it made them feel. And then you ask for forgiveness and then you make the commitment to change and to continue to change. And so those were the steps that we talked about last week when we were talking about forgiveness in the family. And Rachel, a couple of weeks before, had talked about forgiveness in the extended family and even in friends because I know with Tracy and I, we were single for a long time and so our friends were our family and those that are single, their friends are their family and that's, that's what we do uh, when we were single. But we just wanted to kind of think about these things as we go forward, but also just wanted to stop and see what questions for those that were here last week or questions for anybody that's new, what questions may you have from what we've discussed so far between what JB discussed about forgiveness in the community, what we've discussed about forgiveness in the family, and just the steps that we've talked about as a way to maybe go through forgiveness. Any questions? Anybody been pondering their rock? <laughs> okay. Well, I can always come up with questions. So. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am curious about how the, the class will progress and, and look at um, forgiveness and some of what you were just talking about, apology. Um, I I probably find myself needing to 
apologize more than I more than I need to forgive. <laughs> I have a tendency probably to wrong people more than they wrong me, and so in in some ways, learning how to apologize better um, is related to the idea of learning how to forgive better. Um, but we haven't really gone there yet. Yeah, uh, Brian, I would say that these same steps that we were talking about, and of course we also looked at the ones last week uh, that I talked about that when I met with uh, uh, Father Dr. Tran, who's a Jesuit priest at Gonzaga, and he talked about that you need to name it, you need to own it, name it, and then you need to let it go. And then you need to let the light in to replace whatever you're letting out, let something good come in. But I also think these steps are the same way, is that, you know, when you apologize, it's like, name it the way that you would have felt that they seem to have reacted, then ask them how did that make them feel, and then repeat it again the way that they describe it, the way that they said that it felt, and then, you know, commit to change. I think the same steps with an apology works as it is with a deeper forgiveness. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and that's, yep. see, seeing that is kind of what triggered yep. that, that, that we talked, we, we hadn't talked as much about the front end mm -hmm. of forgiveness as much as we had talked about when people do us better. Yep. Good question. Yes. Uh, I don't know if there's a mystery of this, but this has been a conversation in our house, or maybe it speaks to our personalities, but the idea of naming it the way they would name it, um, there's a little bit of struggle with like authenticity if I would not characterize it that way. There's a line we've been quoting from all creatures great and small where someone tells a character, just admit that you're wrong. And he goes, I don't know that I am exactly. <laughs> and I, we, I think our whole family can relate to that line. And so I, so like for example, if someone, you did some, someone thinks you did something maliciously and you know you did it. And they would, they would describe you wrong as you maliciously did this, you know. If I know that I did not maliciously do that, I would have a really hard time putting it in their words. Does that make sense? So there's like an authenticity. Yes. And, and the one that I described last week is that my oldest son says, I do not feel like you love me. And so I can't tell him that what he feels is wrong. And so I would name it as... I hear you saying that you feel that I have maliciously done this. That's what I'm hearing, how you feel. And then you can talk about that that was not my intention as part of the asking for forgiveness, but we can't change that that's the way they feel about it and that we have to address the way they feel. And that's part of that listening deeply because even though that was not our intent, that is the way that they feel and the way they took it. And that's part of naming it the way they would see it in that part. Do you have a question also? I was just thinking about in the four steps, there is action on the person asking forgiveness and the person being asked. And sometimes, this may be an oversimplification, but sometimes I think we look at, okay, there's the four steps, and this conversation is going to be 10 minutes. <laughs> or there's the four steps, and I'm going to ask them, will you forgive me? And they say no. Yep. <laughs> and i got to just take it. You yep. know? So when we talk about that the, the study is a, forgiveness is a journey yep. and, and going through, 
it's true because we can go through those steps and it can literally take minutes and it can take years. It can take years. Um, but I have to be prepared for what I could, they could tell me yes and they could tell me no. Yeah. And they could tell me this is over and they could tell me I need time. And they could say, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, I didn't understand. Of course I would be. You know, it, yeah. you don't know. It's a real roll of the dice. And then sometimes you go to ask for forgiveness and they didn't even know that you had done anything. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> but you are feeling the guilt because you did. You had something, but maybe they didn't pick up on it. Yeah. But you did, and you need to go through those steps. Same thing. So, yeah, it's... Most things in the world, there is not a one-size-fits-all, and that's why we say this is a journey. This is not a blueprint saying this is exactly how you have to do it for it to work. No, but it is some ideas that will help you on this journey, but each person's journey is different. Each person's situations are different. And we talked about, too, that you know there's some situations where if you're in physical harm, this is not something that you need to step into. You may need to go through the steps to redo it yourself, and I'll talk about this today when I talk about forgiving myself. But if you're in physical harm, that person probably doesn't want your forgiveness, and they don't want to hear about it. And so that's kind of one of those ones that you have to take into mind and keep that as part of it. So thanks for the questions. Um, we're going to start out with a real easy question to start today. What is love? <laughs> so if you're in a group near somebody, maybe two or three of you can get together, but turn to each other and answer the question, what is love? share what did y'all discuss in your group what was your group's definition of love what is love we had some good conversations so I know you said something well, I was a Bible major so I ought to use it at some point like we use love for so many things in English like what is it seven different words in Greek or something like that and sure. both languages have 
you know, they broke that up into a lot of different things, so it could mean a thousand different things in, in our vernacular. So there's different forms of it, sure. Someone else, what is love? You talked about it um, a little bit being, you know, we're commanded to love, so it's more than just an emotion. Like it's something that we're told to do as Christians. Um, so kind of the act of putting others before you, or there's action there. Like I said, love is uh, sacrifice, being uh, parents of young kids, mm -hmm. you know, the Anybody else? I just learned something about mine. Uh, Dang it. <laughs> Dang it. I'm an ace, so that fits in real well with me. <laughs> Have any of you ever read the book by M. Scott Peck, The Road Less Traveled? So we've got a few. So yeah, it came out in 1978, and it's been around a while. Uh, I had not read it until after reading All About Love by Bell Hooks. And when she was talking about love in her book, All About Love, she, she reached back to two things that he said. One was is that Peck said that we do not have to love, we choose to love. But one of the things he did was he gave this definition of love, and the more I, after I read Bell Hooks, after going back and reading his original chapter on it, and then thinking about it, I was like, you know what, I really do like this definition, and it is that we will extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth spiritual growth so it, it kind of encompasses more of what he was saying about that there are all different types of love that in the English language we have so few but I like this idea that it is component of not only our own spiritual growth but of somebody else's spiritual growth and that that would be the encompassment of love so we look at what we read, and then, you know, in Matthew, you know, they're asking, you know, Lord, what should we do? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, you have those. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where I get into trouble. Because <laughs> if you cannot love yourself, how do you love someone else? And when you can't forgive yourself, it becomes difficult. And in books, as Bell Hooks, when she was writing this, she put this out here. It says, self-love cannot flourish in isolation. It is no easy task to be self-loving. Simple axioms that make self-love sound easy only make matters worse. It leaves many people wondering why, if it is easy, they continue to be trapped by feelings of self-hate. Amen. It just, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of pithy statements about it. But if it, if it is that, if it is that short, why am I the outlier? Yeah. 
it's just it's just more more reasons to make it harder, right? You just put up more more rocks to reach back into last week. Yeah, you put up more you put up more barriers. And again, you can't do this in isolation. But when this burden is on you, it is so heavy. And and yes, love and forgiveness are going hand in hand in this, and they go together. It was funny when I was looking at this and thinking about this, it just came to me early this morning when I was meditating, and I said, you know what? I says, sometimes the best way to understand how you feel is to just go back to someone who did it the best, and so from the sound of music, <laughs> Julie Andrews, Maria Von Trapp, and Captain Von Trapp, but the beginning of this song is in a lot of ways the way that I felt when my wife said yes. must have done something good because I cannot believe that you could love me. And that is part of what Bell Hooks is talking about here <clears throat> is that we have this in us that it's very difficult to believe that someone could love me because I must have done something wicked. I had something wrong with me. There was something that was a part of me that made it difficult for me to believe that anyone would love me because I struggle with it so deeply myself. So what does love have to do with it? And we're not talking Tina here. But love and forgiveness, I truly believe, go hand in hand. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King said that we must develop the capacity to forgive. The one who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. So I do not think that you can separate the two. I think they go hand in hand, particularly in this case, when we talk about forgiveness of self. When I was reading Dr. Furch's book, he talked about that one of the things that a servant leadership can help do, a servant leader can do, is help people to overcome shame and guilt. And part of that forgiveness of self, part of loving self, is that overbearing burden of shame and guilt. And he talked about that it's darkness and shame often accompany each other. And in darkness, vision can be obscured. We have all experienced the shame of having wronged either ourselves or others and the painful riff that results. 
part of that forgiveness and having that problem with forgiving selves is that part there of the darkness and the shame are often accompanied. That there puts darkness within ourself that blocks us from being able to believe that we can be forgiven, that blocks us from being able to believe that we can be loved. So this leads into this week. And again, I said this was most difficult and this is probably the most difficult topic I have to talk about. I mentioned last week, you know, that I had an issue with my dad. We had had a fight. He held my arm, tore all the cartilage in it, and I had a fear of him from that. And we were able to mend our relationship and go forward and go forward and move on from that. But my parents' um, relationship, their marriage was a rocky, stormy relationship, very stormy. Uh, my wife and I said that we put the fun in dysfunctional. My parents did not put any fun in the dysfunctional. <laughs> Literally, my, my brother and sister had married and had moved out. I was at home the longest uh, from them. And so I'm in late high school. I'm in college, in my first few years of college. And literally, my dad worked at BF Goodrich, so he would leave between 6 and 7 to get to work. And so every morning around 6 a.m., I am woken with my mother in a rage and screaming and yelling at him as he goes out the door. And so I woke up with that each morning, each morning that this went on. And as I said, my dad and I were able to mend our relationship, but they truly needed a, a counselor of major proportion to help them through the things that they were going through. And as a 20-year-old, I became the counselor. So my mother would pull me aside and tell me everything that my dad had done wrong and why she was right. And then my dad would pull me aside and tell me everything that my mother was doing wrong and why he was right. And for the first time in my life, my dad cried in front of me because he was so upset with what was going on with my dad, but I'm 20 years old, I cannot do this, I cannot handle this. This is not on me to be able to be your counselor. And I'm like, why am I having to do this? And one of those last fights that took place was on a morning, I was gonna be going to school again. My mother was screaming, yelling, she was in a rage like I'd never heard her before. I woke up, stayed in my room, didn't do anything. But I, you know, there's no way not to hear every single word that was being said. And she said, I'm leaving you. I'm packing my bags. I'm going to my daughter's house. And I'm going to leave. And I don't care if you live or die. I am gone. And so she packed up and went to my sister's house. Now, my parents grew up in the Great Depression. And in the Great Depression, there was scarcities. And I'm not to paint a picture that my parents didn't have love in them. They, they did, but not the kind that we read about, that it was the spiritual growth of oneself or others around you. But money was always something that was in scarcity. And money was always part of the argument. 
And my dad was a factory worker. He worked at BF Goodrich for 30-something years. But he didn't bring home what my mother thought that she deserved. And she had to work and help support. And so that was a lot of the riff. But that morning she said, I don't care if you live or die, I'm gone. And my dad had not been feeling well for the last couple of weeks. He had had a, a job. He quit the BF Goodrich because he started having problems. He had a paper route and he couldn't even continue that because he's having back pain and all kinds of issues that he couldn't even move. And so here she is, she left, she's gone. I'm left there with my dad sick. Something's going on, we don't know what. And she walked out and said, I don't care if you live or die. And matter of fact, she said, I hope you die. So go on. That week, my dad, I had to try to take care of him while I was going back and forth to school, doing my part-time job on campus to kind of get money to have my gas money. And he was going to doctors, and somebody from church actually took him to the doctor. And then at the end of that week, it was a Friday after school, and I just finished my shift at Alabama. I come back, and my mother's at the house. And I'm like, what are you doing home? She said, I need to tell you something. She said, your dad has cancer, and he's not going to live. So, but she was still so cold and so stoic when she said it. And I knew what she had said when she left. And so I was angry, and I took off. And what I usually did when I was angry, I got in the car, I put in Phil Collins, take me home, and I drove until I went. Uh, I think I drove to Birmingham that day, which is like uh, 40 miles, 50, 60 miles away and I just could not deal with it. And we moved on and we got to that point of that he was going to be passing and she put up this front of, okay, I have to take care of him and I have to put up this front that I'm the self-sacrificing woman taking care of my husband so that others will see what's going on, but I'm really angry about every bit of this. I'm angry that I don't know where money's coming from. I'm angry that I'm going to have to take care of him. She was angry about all of it. And so I confronted her. I said, I know what you said. And it's coming true. You said you wish he was dead. Well, he is. He's dying. And she denied it. She put up that front and said, I did not. I said, yes, you did. So I confronted her. And it broke our relationship completely. I no longer trusted her. I no longer had faith in her. And it hurt to see my dad suffering. But at 21, I was not equipped at that time to be able to take on that burden. My brother was in town, but he was married and he had his own kids. My sister was in Florida. She's married and has her own children. And during a time of when you would think that your family would help you to go through the grieving of losing your parent, I stood alone. Now, Tracy and my friends, as we talked about being single, your friends are your goal and without my best friend without tracing some others and my adoptive family from the church that I attended without them it would have been extremely difficult for me to go through it but because of this I became an extremely angry 
angry person because I felt like there must be something wrong with me because no one loved me. Four days before my father died, which was October the 6th, is my birthday, which was October the 2nd. So he was into a coma by then. The pain had got him so much that he was being drug-induced into a coma to keep him from being too violent and everything. So I went and I sat in that room on my birthday by myself, and nobody, my mother didn't come to me, my brother didn't come to me, my sister didn't come to me. But I had a wonderful aunt, who I have some stories that I could tell about her. She was a pistol fire of a woman, my Aunt Marie. And she came in, and she's like, today's your birthday, and you need to tell me what you want. I'm going to go downstairs and get something. So she brought me back a barbecue sandwich and chocolate milk. <laughs> but I was in that room by myself. And again, I felt alone. So I kept thinking, what is wrong with me? Why cannot I be loved? Because I'm being rejected. My brother never came to the house when my dad was ill. He came once and cut the grass once. And, and he had his own family, but he had problems with dad that he has to deal with. But then I was just left alone. And I remember that I kept it together. I sucked it up. I held it in. And I had held it together until my best friend walked in the door. And he came in in those last few days. And when he came in the door, I broke. I absolutely collapsed because finally somebody was in the room that was there for me and cared for me. And it was very hard. But it left me with bitterness. It left me with anger. And Tracy and I were dating at that time. And because I was such a violently angry person, I never hit anybody, but oh, my stars. I could explode. Uh, matter of fact, uh, there was a night that we were supposed to have a thing at church we were supposed to meet together. We were having a guest speaker in. Buddy Bell was our youth minister, campus minister. And I was in one of those moods where it had set me off. I was too angry. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't do anything. And that night, CM Newton and the Doors were in town to play Bama basketball. And so I'm like, I need to go to the Coliseum because I do not need to go over there that night. So there was two or three of us. My best friend was with me. We go to the Coliseum. And unfortunately for um, that night, John Cloggerty, does anybody know who John Cloggerty was? He was, the, he was a horrible SEC official, and we knew his name. And he was the ref that night, and I was letting him have it from the stands to the point that he turned and stared me down because I was so raging, angry. And I screamed, I yelled, I let everything out. And at halftime, uh, my friend turned to me and said, uh, do you want anything to drink? I said, yeah, here's He's like, no, 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 it's on me. It's on me. No, 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 no. And so later that night, Buddy called and says, you know, you should have been there. You should have done this. You know, da 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 da, da. He's talking to my friend, and, you know, he's telling him. And of course, my friend was great. He said, well, you know, he said, what would Jesus do? He said, well, you know, if seeing Newton and the doors was in town, Jesus probably was at the Coliseum. <laughs> <laughs> so that didn't go over too well. But he said, 
He said, who else? He says, I'm going to call Joel. And he said, no, you do not want to call Joel. <laughs> that would not be a good thing tonight. And it took me years to go through it. And I finally met with a counselor a few years later when I had left Tuscaloosa and I moved to Huntsville for a short period of time, was attending Mayfair. And I finally had just gotten to the point to where this burden was just so heavy, so crushing, and it was defecting everything that I did. I was still a bitter person, still an angry person. And I went in and they told me, he says, I want you to write a letter. I want you to write every single thing that this has made you feel and under no circumstances are you to ever send it. But I want you to write everything that happened. And I did. And that was kind of the first step into the process. Only the first step. And I still needed to get years of talking through it and everything. I still had this problem that something was wrong with me that nobody would love me for who I was because my own family couldn't love me. How could somebody else love me? And it took years to go through it, but eventually I started to find out, it's like, okay, this is not just me. I can work through this. And I still battle it. I still battle it to this day. And when I first did it, I was like, you know, I mentioned this last week, God, I know that you want to heal me, I'm just not there yet. Now, when you go through something like this, both you change and the person that you are angry with changes. And I reconciled with my mother, but the relationship was never going to be the same because we were not the same people anymore. And I did. I put a block up. And I would do anything that she needed. And when she was sick, I went back and forth. I did anything I could to help her. But I would not let her and let my family be exposed to the things that she did. Because during a part of our marriage, her and my brother got into a spat didn't talk for three years. And so we had to go to her house. And then we had to go to his house. We had to go here. And I refused to stay at her house anymore because as soon as we walked in, all I heard was how bad he was. And she would pit us against each other. She would say, do you know what your sister did? Do you know what your brother did? And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> you're not going to pit us against each other. We know your games. We're not going to do it. And so I did. I put up a block and said, I will trust you with this, but I will not trust you with everything because we are not the same people anymore. I'm not the same person anymore, and you will not hurt my family is not what we're going to do. And with that, it is because forgiveness is not cheap. It is not cheap. And it requires a personal form of integrity that is extremely hard. It is extremely hard. It is extremely difficult. So I am still on this journey. It still is something that affects me that I'm like, I, I, I have the hardest time. Uh, one of the things I have the most difficult time with is having my photo taken because I do not like anything I ever see in a photo. So I have very few photos of myself and it's a difficult time to get me to do it. Because of that I had such a poor self-image of why should anybody love me, I don't want to see myself in a photo. 
And so I would avoid photographs for a long time. I've eased up, I've kind of allowed myself to do it now. But again, it's not my favorite thing because seeing myself is extremely difficult. So I had mentioned before, and I put on that list, that there's a, a book by Mark Nepo. And it was funny that last night's meditation was this. And so I'm going to ask you to pull out your phones, and I want you to find a photograph of yourself. Everybody got a picture of themselves? All right. Close your eyes. Get comfortable. And I want you to take a deep breath. Do one more and then breathe it out and just make a sound, you know. Just let it all out. Breathe in. Oh. So open your eyes back up, and I want you to focus on that picture, and I want you to allow yourself to see the relationship that you have with yourself exactly as it is. Close your eyes. Again, take in a deep breath. One more. So open your eyes again. And this time, focus on the picture and allow yourself to accept that person entirely, blemishes and all. <laughs> 